Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bore Film Podcast. This week, uh, we have someone who I call a very special guest, uh, but he's only really a special guest to me. We have uh, one of my ex-editors where I used to write. Uh, we also have a longtime friend, and most importantly, the man who introduced me to Letterboxd. Uh, he asked me when I first started the podcast to talk, uh, come on and talk about Tenet and Nolan, and I couldn't say no to him, even though his social media presence isn't as good as the other people usually have on, and this episode may not do as well. Otherwise, let's just hope that the content and the topic are big enough that we can keep audiences' attention. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Harry King. Hello, thank you for having me on. There's some big accolades you were introducing me with. Yeah, of course, I have to, Harry. Now, uh, uh, Harry, do you do you listen to the show regularly? I've listened to three episodes, but I'm now working my way back through them all. So I'll catch up. So do you know what um, what we usually, you know, do in our intros? Of course, you start with a, um, a film that I've watched this week. Yep, yep, yep. And then what we are going to talk about, we are going to talk about Tenet, which we saw together in the cinema when I went to visit Harry. And we are also going to talk about Nolan, what we like about Nolan, what maybe some of his long-term issues are, which Tenet may or may not have exposed now. But first of all, because we didn't mention it in the last podcast, even though we talked about Black Panther, we do have to mention the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, he died at age 43 of colon cancer. There is a really lovely piece up on the board at the moment that uh, Dominic Thornton wrote and he should be on next week uh, in order to discuss um, Chadwick Boseman's uh, life and works uh, more. I've been slowly working my way through his uh, filmography since his death because all I'd seen was um, his, his roles in the MCU and The Five Bloods beforehand. But um, it's a phenomenal talent that, uh, you know, I woke up to the news on Saturday, uh, the Saturday before this recording, and it was just uh, unbelievable. It's completely unbelievable to think that he's gone. And he's left such an incredible, incredible body of work behind him from pretty much everything I've seen of him. He just absolutely elevates the films. And he really brings this presence and gravitas to everything he works in, uh, which is really impressive to have uh, for a 43-year-old for a or an under 43-year-old as well, to just always manage to bring a presence uh, to every scene that you're in. Um, I've gone quite long on there, Harry, without uh, asking for your opinion on this. Uh, are there any words that you want to say on this topic as well? Um, I mean, I was in a similar boat. I woke up on Saturday and it was my birthday and the first thing I saw was, was the news. And it's one of those that like, you see often on Twitter, like people are saying a certain person's died and it's often fake. And for a second, I thought it was fake until I saw the articles on The Guardian. And yeah, it was absolutely shocking. And it's just so imp incredible how he lived with it for for many years and recorded i think black panther was during that time and um obviously the infinity war and endgame and like there was no sign in his performances or in his interviews really that anything was wrong but he was obviously living with that with the the late stage of of cancer so i just it's sort of mind-blowing how amazingly he dealt with it especially in the profession he is yeah, absolutely phenomenal talent. And I can't wait to talk about um, his films more uh, next week as well. Um, but I will say for now that for anyone who has not seen 42, where he played Jackie Robinson, that may well be kind of um, his best performance. Uh, certainly out of the ones I've seen so far, it really is up there with 
T'Challa in Black Panther as well. So, um, yeah, moving on from that, uh, Harry, it's time for the, the films that we've been watching this week. Now, this is kind of a bit of a weird one this week because, um, uh, so I went to visit Harry, uh, who's, who's gone back to his student digs in Leeds. And because I was nearby, uh, I decided to come and visit him. And we ended up, the, the only films that Harry has watched this week have been with me. So I can tell you what Harry has watched this week. Harry, tell me about, <laughs> tell me about Fantastic Four. So we watched the 2015 Fantastic Four film. It was on a Freeview TV on, on Film 4. Um, we thought it'd be a good idea to watch that. So we, we watched lots of quiz shows until it started. And it honestly completely ruined the perfect sort of vibe that we had that day. Uh, to the point where when the film ended, we were both so exhausted that we just went to bed at, at 10. Um, and yeah, it was, it's not one of the, well, actually it is one of the worst films I've ever seen. I mean, it's, it wasn't quite half a star letterbox, but um, it, it was pretty awful in, in a lot of different ways and just incredibly boring as well. I think for the fact that it killed our vibe completely, it probably does deserve that half a star for doing it. Yeah, maybe but, it have to um, be downgraded. Uh, but I think there's just enough in terms of like uh, Josh Trank's what he was actually trying to do, kind of like shining through. That I'm I'm kind of willing to give some form of a benefit of a doubt um, to him. And while that is like half a star's worth of a benefit of a doubt, it's still one nonetheless, and a very generous one at that. Um, I can't really remember much of it. It was just so unbelievably tedious. Um, and just the performances and the cast, uh, they're, they're all fine. But I think in a film like this, it doesn't matter how good their performances are. The film's just really boring. And it's like, it's trying to be this kind of strange sci-fi body horror thing. That was what Josh Trank was trying to go for. But clearly a studio was just like, no, it needs to be more sort of mainstream action, more like the Marvel films instead, which, which is just another like sign of how Fox can kind of completely mishandled their, their IPs near the end of... Um, near the end of their time of uh, using these superheroes. And The New Mutants is about to come out in the UK, or is it already out? I think it came out last week, but I, no one's really seen it, I don't think. I wasn't sure if that was just in the US or not, but I, I will possibly venture out to see that because it feels kind of, it's been delayed so many times that I just kind of want to see what happens. I mean, yeah, it's definitely an interesting one because obviously it was filmed in 2016 or 17. But so it's actually been and they there were rumors of a lot of reshoots, but I don't think they actually happened. So this film's existed in the state it's in and the state it's been released in for sort of four, three, four years. And that's quite unusual um, with a big film for it to 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 existed like that, I guess, um, and not come out. Yeah, so I think that was from the trailer we saw um, when we went to watch The Invisible Man together. It looked very much like it was some sort of horror vibe that was going on. Um, so maybe, maybe it, again, it's just kind of just like half the studio wants, well, no, the studio wants um, big action, but the, the director wants horror instead. I, I don't know. But speaking of cinema releases that me and Harry have seen together, Harry. 
it's time to get into our main topic for today. It's a release that has been coming out for a long time. It's been one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Um, so would you like to walk me through Tenet? Uh, the, you know, everything around it. Uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, new film about time inversion, for those who don't know already. Could you walk me through the plot and could you give me your initial thoughts on it, having watched it once? Uh, because I decided that I'd tank the second viewing for you. Yes. So, um, like with a lot of big films, I try to avoid like the trailers and as much as possible about it. And obviously, the marketing for this was very. Like they, they, I mean, the trailers actually watch them after the film, and they do give a lot away the later ones. But initially, the marketing was very kept things vague, and obviously, with the Christopher Nolan film, there's a lot of secrecy and things around it. So I didn't really know what to expect going in. I think I'd just seen the first trailer from like over a year ago, which was like the bit when the the bullets come out the glass and not much else. Um, and I was completely disappointed with it for a lot of reasons. Um, as I used to be quite a big sort of Christopher Nolan fan back when I was getting into films. Um, so you asked me to summarize the plot, and I think that's quite hard. Not because the plot's complex, but because it's presented in such a complex way in the film. And I feel like there isn't, my like biggest criticism is that there is, there is a plot, and it obviously goes on for two and a half hours, but there's no sort of, the, the, it feels like more, like the plot just serves the action scenes and the the time inversion spectacle um but i mean the the base of the plot is there's there's time inversion um and a russian kenneth branner's character who i can't remember the name of um oh, I, I wanted to say andre but that's not what his name is uh, it's something oh, no, i think it is andre actually i just got the letterbox up oh brilliant yeah, he wants to but I think this is actually revealed quite late, but he wants to sort of reverse time so that everything gets destroyed. I don't even really understand that aspect of it. Um, and anyway, we've our main character, who is just called the protagonist, John David Washington, he, um, he, his goal is to sort of stop this. And that's sort of it. Like, I, I feel that the rest of the plot is, that's, the, that's sort of the basis of the whole story. Um, so I, I completely agree with you in terms of it's basically um, kind of all serving for this time inversion mechanic so they can, uh, you know, have up on, you know, get as much spectacle in as they possibly can. But do you think that this may not have mattered as much if the, if the, plot, um, if the time inversion stuff itself and the action scenes were possibly more entertaining than they are in places because if you think for example Mad Max Fury Road is a film that just doesn't have a lot of plot when you if you really like reduce it down to what, like its bit parts of what happens in the film it's really like these people driving to one place and then driving back and a lot of it is just serving the spectacle of like that post-apocalypse action but um, Mad Max Fury Road in my opinion is absolutely fantastic whereas Tenet I think leaves a lot more um uh, a lot more um well leaves me a lot more wanting uh in some aspects of it so uh do you think so um do you think uh, this uh, fair kind of comparison to draw what are your thoughts on this kind of compared to that for example do you think that necessarily a plot just to serve action is a bad thing or can a film do it well 
No, I, um, I think you're right. Um, I haven't seen Mad Max for quite a few years, so I can't remember it that well. But I enjoyed that film a lot more than Tenet. Um, and I can't think of other examples, but I'm sure there are film. There's loads of films where the plot is sort of less important, maybe because the characters or the action or whatever. Um, but in Tenet, I think once you'd seen the inversion a few times, it, it did. It it sort of it, it's it's a big spectacle the first time, but then it's just more of the same. And I mean, it it builds up towards the end, but as yeah, the action scenes weren't necessarily enough to to carry it. Uh, and I suppose the the one thing that I'd say with my Max Fury Road is Furiosa as a character is way, 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 way more interesting than any character in Tenet whatsoever. Um, uh, all of the characters, I suppose, kind of by design, Chris Nolan has decided to kind of skip out on the characters um, uh, like he did in Dunkirk. But he got it in his head. This He kind of has... He, I think he tries to have his cake and eat it uh, in terms of he's not having these characters. He's not fleshing them out at all in service of the time inversion stuff and this kind of um, spy atmosphere of you don't understand what's going on. But then he tries to have some sort of relationships between the characters as well. The only one who's really properly freshed out is Andre. And I was saying this to you and I've been saying this to everyone. Having seen the film twice now, what I'd warn anyone going to the cinema to see this is um, watch it in IMAX. It won't guarantee that you can hear the dialogue, but it means that you'll have a better chance of hearing the dialogue. The first time I watched it in my local cinema and there was so much that I just could not hear for the life of me. Whereas in IMAX, I could actually hear everything. And Kenneth Branagh's character was a lot more compelling when I could not hear him and I had no idea what he was trying to do. Um, <laughs> So his character's the only one that's vaguely fleshed out and he's rubbish. I suppose um, Elizabeth Debicki's character as well is kind of fleshed out, but it's fleshed out in terms of um, I hate my husband who's controlling me. I have a kid. And at every flip in turn, when it comes to mentioning how the whole world's going to be destroyed, she's always like, oh, my kid's going to die as well. Like, yes, yes, we could make this implication as an audience without it being directly stated at us so i think the force relationships um between characters especially um the protagonist and uh, elizabeth debecky's character whose name i can't remember but i imagine that if i don't find it you'll correct me very shortly uh cat cat is the name um yeah so the relationship between the protagonist and cat i suppose cat and andre as well where they don't really have any chemistry whereas you know with an estranged marriage there's at least going to be the chemistry of what was there before. And um, uh, I suppose Neil is the only vaguely interesting character because um, uh, it's kind of, well, he knows more than he's letting on effectively, I think. So there's the general kind of mystery surrounding his character. And that's the only kind of like intrigue, um, which isn't completely forced that any of the characters have. Um, I think that's what really kind of lets this film down in some places. Uh, it's, yeah. Um, so I was wondering what you kind of thought about that, especially in kind of comparison to Dunkirk, where um, I think he does that whole concept a little better because their only relationship between the characters is like um, they're soldiers and they have to fight together. So there's nothing really that complex that he has to set up there. Whereas in Tenet, he has to do more work in setting those things up. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, Dunkirk definitely gets away with it because it's it's this war film and it's there's the three timelines, and that that film gets away with being less about characters because it's that film. He he's going for spectacle like he is in Tenet, but I feel like there the spectacle can carry the film a bit more because the spectacle is everything that's happening. Um, the relationships between the soldiers and things are less important, and he chose not to focus on that. Uh, whereas in Tenet, where you, I think if the characters were stronger, uh, the whole film may may have flown better because there would be more stakes and. Yeah, I suppose the stakes really in this film are just the whole world's going to end, and that's basically it. But then that that as proved by lots of blockbusters, that sort of a bit tired that whole concept of if we don't do this the world's going to end whereas although i guess nolan does do that quite a lot but i i feel like his films are just getting bigger and bigger and and that's coming at the expense of plot and character even more oh yeah i think we should at least mention that the film looks very nice and it's well edited and for a two and a half hour film, for it to flow as well as it does and to not feel kind of that length is a very impressive achievement as well. So credit to him on the technical side, but me and you were saying this, like he's, because the budget for this film is $200 million. How much of that, how much of that really is talent and how much of that is he's had so much money thrown at him that anyone who was like of above a certain level of competency would then be able to do the same thing. Well, that's the interesting thing about his sort of obsession with IMAX cameras because they're really expensive. The film is like, I don't know how many times more expensive than normal film. And most films now shoot digitally anyway. And the way he sort of puts down people who use digital cameras when for a lot of films, IMAX just isn't an option because of how expensive it is. Um, like the films that use IMAX are the biggest films and like Infinity War Endgame shot completely on IMAX but I think that might have been digital I I don't know but um, anyway it's just he has if you listen to him in interviews he makes such a big point about how it's IMAX how it's the best thing ever that is quite snobby in a way because a lot of people making films just can't afford that and as you say that extends to editing and and music and although I wasn't the biggest fan of the music in this film not just because of the sound mixing, but I felt like, is it like Ludwig Göransson or something? I felt like he was going for a very Hans Zimmer sort of, well, not necessarily Hans Zimmer. But I don't more, think it was a Hans Zimmer vibe, to be honest with you, because it didn't not sound that, like... Not that, but more, I don't know, This the music had the same presence it does in Inception and Interstellar, I felt. Not the type of music, but the same sort of way the music plays with used. the film. Um. I think that the music in, in Interstellar and um, uh, what's the other film? Inception. I think they were used exceptionally better. I think that they're really used to kind of supplement the moment. Whereas um, at times in, uh, in Tenet, the music felt quite forceful in places and how it was implemented. I think the music itself was very good. It's a very good tracks, but um, especially I think the thing is with film music, is if you just suddenly, if you're in the frame of mind where you suddenly realise that a track has started playing in the background, 
then I think the music hasn't done its job properly because it should be something kind of a bit more subtle to supplement the scene rather than being the main driving force of the emotion of the story, which I think in it is what happens when music's a lot more forceful, like it was in some parts in Tenant. Yeah, definitely. And obviously we've touched on it and I think everyone knows this by now, but the sound mixing is really bad, which interestingly I hadn't realised was a big thing when Interstellar came out in cinemas. But having only seen that on DVD at home, I've never had a problem with the sound. So I wonder how Tenet will translate to a home release, whether it will actually just be much better. Um, But you'd expect cinemas to be better because the speakers are better. But another interesting thing I found is that in IMAX screens, that like the projectionist can't change any of the sound controls it's all done by imax centrally so that that mix is like the best possible mix because in other places they might turn it down because it's so loud which then might make it even harder to hear the dialogue yeah um i when i saw interstellar in cinemas i can't remember having any problem with the sound mixing to be honest with you, um, that that was fine for me. And this is the first Nolan film where uh, it's been a massive issue for me and I just literally cannot hear anything that's going on. And um, to, a, to a point, do you think that could potentially be Christopher Nolan perhaps becoming a bit complacent? Well, I've seen a few sort of almost conspiracy theory tweets saying like, oh, they, he made it hard to, to listen to, so you have to see it twice. And he is getting like 25% of the first dollar gross, which does sort of, obviously, I don't think that's the reason. But um, yeah, I think maybe he is a bit complacent. And obviously for him, sound's a massive thing. And maybe, oh wait, one point I was thinking of earlier actually is that when you're editing something that you've made yourself and you've watched it hundreds of times and you know all the dialogue, you almost don't need... The mixing maybe because you know the line in your head so you can maybe pick it out from the from the audio track whereas someone seeing it for the first time might struggle a bit more um because i've known when i've edited things in the past people i've shown them to haven't been able to if i've had the music too loud they haven't actually been able to hear what's been said but because i know the line i i can sort of pick it out and maybe it is a little bit of that that these people just have seen the film so many times but you still think there'd be sort of test screenings and yeah that's what i was about to say because the story has it that um tom hardy when he played bane in the dark knight rises was so inaudible in the original test screenings that they had to re-record all his lines and surely for like test audiences would have said something similar here of like we literally cannot hear the dialogue and so it like it gets to a point where I think, you know, we talk about releasing the Snyder Cut, like release the original Bane voice. I want to know how bad that sounded for even Christopher Nolan to throw the towel in and decide to change it. Well, you can actually watch because, um, you know, the sort of start of the film with the plane, like the prologue bit yeah. that was released in IMAX before another film. And that's when the people said, like with the original Bane voice, maybe like six months before the film came out or a year or whatever, that was released and people saw that. And that's when the the feedback came about Bane's voice. And that is actually on YouTube if you want to watch it. And it is quite interesting. And it's not, it's not awful, but I think, because like Nolan doesn't really like to do ADR or anything. So he will, he likes to get the audio on, on set. Um, and with the Bane voice, it was Tom Hardy speaking through the mask into the microphone on set. 
so I think that was the issue that it was just muffled but then obviously when they re-recorded it they could tweak tweak it more maybe and it was if it was in like a, a booth or whatever an insulated booth it probably that's why it ended up sounding much better yeah I I am gonna have to watch that after this because I did not know that that existed but thank you very much for telling me it did exist um so is that kind of everything you have to say about Tenet um, I suppose we've been very kind of negative here. I would like to say that the car chase scene and how that inverts is quite good. And there are certain lines of dialogue that are actually quite charming, quite funny, quite witty, um, and capture that kind of James Bond vibe they're going for. But equally, there's quite a fair amount of dialogue, which is just absolute drivel. Um, which is just really quite unbearable to listen to. And some of um, what we would call zingers, Harry, uh, <laughs> kind of placed throughout the film. Uh, I, can think, I can think specifically my favourite kind of bad line, bad one-liner, and one-liners are just peppered everywhere throughout this film because Chris Nolan wants us to know that this is kind of a spy movie at heart to try and get away with some of its issues. Um, uh, when he when he says I he walks into the kitchen and says I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. It's just some of it's just really silly. And every time the protagonist sits there and says to people with a straight face, "I'm the protagonist," it's just you just want him to shut up. It's kind of unbearable. But um, yeah, did you have anything else other than other than your favourite zinger that you want to uh, share with us now that you want to say? I mean, though the I'm the protagonist of this operation one was was the one that got me. I think I actually laughed a little bit in the cinema. Um, it just, I, I think it was meant to come across as a serious line, but it just didn't. Um, the one thing that I did come across earlier when I was just reading a bit about um, like Nolan's history is that in 2012, he was quite like keen to direct a James Bond film. He, he said he wanted to wait until after he sort of implied after like Daniel Craig's done. And at this point, I think Skyfall had been announced. And I think people, a lot of people thought that would be the last Daniel Craig Bond film. So I wonder if part of Tenet was that he'd sort of wanted to do this spy. And he mentioned how he used to love spy films. And, and I think the spy film aspect of it just doesn't feel done enough against the sort of the inversion um yeah um but i thought i thought that was quite an interesting point that he he had seemed very keen to direct a bond film and maybe it's the same as like tarantino saying he wants to make a star trek film which probably it's never going to happen but but it, it it i thought it was quite an interesting thing i would like to see christopher nolan do a bond film sincerely for the fact that at that point we know there's someone there who is going to tell him no <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, and as well as that, I think that the first hour of the film, with the more kind of spy aspects of it, kind of stand out more, I think, upon a rewatch. Uh, at least that's it, that's how it felt, kind of, um, in, in, in my mind. And uh, if you hear about, I, yeah, I think you're right about spy film kind of vibes in general it doesn't really give off as much as it wants to it's more about the time inversion and that takes up a lot more of the time it was only really i got the spy film kind of energy from it once i'd read an interview with christopher nolan say talking about it being like a spy film at its core um yeah uh something else that i want to add now is i pointed this out to you um i think visually 
the, the closest this film is to another Nolan film is Inception. The visual style very much seems to hark back to Inception. This idea that we've got this one sole concept, which is driving a lot of the plot and action is very off the ilk of Inception. What I didn't like, it, it got too much into copying territory for me when um, the three major action set pieces in Inception, a fist fight, a car chase, a shootout at the end. And um, uh, the thing is, is that those three are all the same kind of major action set pieces used in Tenet as well. So that to me um, stank a bit of just being a bit lazy and Chris Nolan being a bit lazy and the ending shootout in Tenet especially is really bad apart from the one bit where the skyscraper blows up in two places going forward and backwards and it feels like Chris Nolan came up with that in his head and then was like how do I fit a scene around it and then forgot to make an actually like compelling firefight but there we are so moving on from Tenet it's time to talk about Nolan's body of work at large which I've been promising that we will talk about for two weeks now on the podcast and now it's finally here Harry are you excited as one of our keen listeners that this is finally I'm very excited that what I've been promised for two weeks and has been delayed is now finally um finally gonna happen good good well we've got um a very large listener base to to obviously uh to please so we better we better get on with it uh it's it is worth noting that a lot more people have um been listening recently because we've actually started advertising on instagram which i should have done earlier than i did so thank you all very much for joining in and listening i hope you're enjoying it and uh thank you very much for uh, being patient while we wait on these uh on this nolan films episode so harry do you want to just um give us what your favorite nolan film is my favorite nolan film and i don't think this is his best film like explicitly but it's interstellar um which i know a lot there's a lot of i i think it falls apart for me um sort of in the last once they go through the black hole but it's still my favorite film just something about the, the energy and the, the whole like vibe of the film. The spectacle. The spectacle, spectacle. Is really good. But it's not just that. I think the emotional aspects of it really do. I, I find them really strong, especially the ending and the messages seen after they come yes. back from the water planet. Yeah. The characters uh, are actually compelling. Yes. And yeah. And the, the visual effects and everything are also incredible. And they give me a very like 2001 vibe with the the ship and things how you can look at it and you think that's a model that's not a cgi ship yeah absolutely it's very impressive so um if we let's have some fun now let's ask as well for your least favorite nolan film and which one you think is the most overrated and then i'll give my um my same opinions and uh we'll we'll discuss from there at the moment my least favorite is tenet even though i think the action in it is obviously fantastic and better than Dunkirk. The more I think about it, the more I dislike it. Uh, my least favourite would be Dunkirk. I cannot remember it for the life of me. Mm. So but I feel um, like Tenet will go the same yeah. way for me. I feel like I already don't remember a lot of what happened. No, I, I, can, I can remember it like fairly, fairly solidly. It's just, um, I think there's like, while Dunkirk all throughout, I think is probably a more forgettable war film than 
than we think. There's the one scene where the bullet holes come through the boat and that's about it. And you look back on Dunkirk and you think that maybe if it had been a 15 instead, it'd be remarkably better because it, you'd have more intensity with the blood and stuff that can then be shown. But with Tenet, I think everything in it is kind of either very enjoyable. Uh, it's like it's either really cool or it's just really stupid. Yeah. And then my the one I think the most is the most overrated, and I haven't seen it for a while, and I'd be interested to rewatch it. But it's Inception. Yeah, I agree. I I feel like people hold that film as some masterpiece, and it is a very good action film and sort of heist film. But I think people sort of focus on the concept as being this incredible thing, and it is. It's clever, but I I don't think it's. The film's structured so much like The Matrix as well, but I think The Matrix, just action-wise, is so much better. Um, And as well, I would say uh, the dialogue in Inception is some of Nolan's worst dialogue in general. Very Um, exposition-y. Yeah, not even that. I just feel like some of the characters um, don't come across as authentic at times. I think it might be Nolan's tendency to just not like not have any swearing in as well. He wants to keep everything family friendly, PG clean. Um, and I think that this kind of is one of Nolan's more long-term issues where everything has to be 12A. Everything kind of has to be marketable as a like kind of family blockbuster, even though he deals with some really dark topics all throughout it. Um, so that's, you know, that's, what it is uh when it comes to my favorite uh i think it's one that doesn't get mentioned in the conversation enough mainly because it's not like what nolan's known for in terms of spectacle and so forth um but i think that memento is still really really good um having watched it twice now uh the second time like is even better than the first time where you kind of know all of the intricacies. Uh, I think it's got a really good like thematic basis to it as well in terms of personal identity and people lying to themselves and not being able to live with themselves and what they've done. And uh, I think that the next time I watch it, I'll probably end up enjoying it even more as well. And it's kind of a shame that Nolan doesn't, I mean, he still plays a lot with the idea of time and chronology, but he, I feel like because he has access to the money, he just uses it, whereas Memento had to be kind of so much more creative and he had to be a bit more laid back with it. But it's phenomenally written and phenomenally directed as well. Yeah, I saw Memento a few years ago, so I don't remember it that well. But with Memento, compared to a lot of his films, the characters, from what I remember, were really strong. And that that carries the film through, because obviously most of it is Guy Pearce and the the other guy, I can't remember his name. Oh, um, Joe Oh, Joe Pantoliano or something. He was so it's Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano who are both um who are both in the Matrix and I think that's how they were um certainly how um Joe uh was recruited into it because Carrie Ann Moss recommended uh him starring in it to Christopher Nolan. Um but because of like the whole role of Teddy in that film as to you know uh, whether he's a good guy or not. Um, uh, people, uh, Chris, Christopher Nolan originally had kind of doubts in terms of, um, whether people would instantly kind of catch on and thinking like he's a villain or whether like Joe's kind of reputation for the characters he plays would, um, hinder him in the film at any point. 
I think also it's worth mentioning Insomnia as part of that 12A debate, as because as Nolan's only 15 film, it does... Isn't Memento it, 15 it, as well? Oh yeah, and Memento is 15. Yeah. But Insomnia as well. Um, I guess those two before he got into like big Warner Brothers films, but Insomnia, which I watched for the first time a few weeks ago, it is a remake, so it doesn't feel that much like a Nolan film. And I think for that reason, a lot of the time it is sort of forgotten about. But um, it's a pretty strong film, and it's got one of his best female characters, which I think is something we're going to come on to discuss. Yes. Not that it's his character, I guess. But um, yeah, that film being a 15, it's a dark film, but it just feels like they can go more places and there's more blood and I think they they swear a bit and it just I feel like that would definitely benefit some of his other films a bit more maturity yeah because he tries I suppose as blockbusters goes um uh Nolan's known for trying to make them quite gritty and I think that grit can be lacking from from what we've discussed Uh, I think that's kind of the main problem that can underpin a lot of his films is that the grit can often be lacking and while um while in Inception, that's not exposed so much until you go back to it for like the fourth or fifth time. Um, I think in Dunkirk, it was kind of instantly exposed to people because of the fact that um, he's trying to make some gritty war film, but it kind of misses that mark by quite a distance for the fact that it's still trying to be a 12A. And I think also it doesn't necessarily... Like The Dark Knight, if it was a 15, I don't think would have been that different because... I don't think you're going to have those characters swearing and maybe you show a bit more violence, but it's, it's, there's enough shown like they, he really pushes the 12 a to the limit in that film and there's enough shown and there's enough implied that I think that film's fine. But as you said, Inception and then Dunkirk especially are ones where it may have been better if he had got a, a higher rating. And I wonder in the future with obviously things like Joker making a billion I wonder if there is an opportunity for him to make a slightly more adult film, um, whether Warner Brothers would let him or whether he'd want to. But Yeah, that's a really good point to make, actually. Um, I hadn't thought about necessarily whether he'd go back and do that in the future. Um, I suppose people are probably going to be shouting at us at the moment if they're actually listening and if they care a bit too much about the fact that we've not really mentioned the Dark Knight trilogy so far. So I think... Let's mention the Dark Knight trilogy um, and talk about how good that is for a little bit. Yeah, well, the Dark Knight trilogy is, even though a lot of people don't like the Dark Knight Rises, I think that's still a pretty good film, um, especially a superhero film, which is, you forget in a way, those films are superhero films. Um, coming in at a time, especially Batman Begins, when Batman especially had been completely driven into the ground with Batman and Robin. And he revived that and then set the tone for the next, as you as you mentioned on a previous podcast, you kind of set the tone for the, the next run of, especially DC films, um, for good or for bad. But yeah, those films are all great and they flow as one very well as well, which a lot of trilogies don't necessarily do. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think Batman Begins is kind of forgotten in a way. Um because of uh i suppose it wasn't um on well i think everyone doesn't like the dark knight rises because it came after the dark knight and everyone forgets batman begins because it became before the dark knight basically um but the dark knight is 
absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, and Heath Ledger's character, especially as playing the Joker, um, I think was a really good way of kind of playing with post 9-11 paranoia and other things like that. And this idea of terrorism being able to come uh, from anywhere and that kind of fear and chaos that the Joker represents at its core as a character really brought into this kind of gritty blockbuster uh, was uh, a really kind of genius interpretation on the character. Uh, and so, you know, it adds a whole kind of level of thematic depth to a superhero film that's usually just completely unseen. I suppose the whole themes of justice and vigilantism always will be a part of Batman and his mythos. But um, I think Christopher Nolan has managed to make a Batman film that may well never be beaten, especially as Batman, if he's going to stay in like a current studio system and DC are just absolutely desperate to make money, then I'm not sure how many risks they're going to be willing to take. Um, hopefully they let Matt Reeves have some room to express himself, but you know, uh, I think I'm going to remain pessimistic on that one. Yeah, it is interesting to think how much freedom, especially now when you hear how, I guess because Nolan, he was one of the first of these sort of smaller film directors who ended up going into a big franchise after only making a few films with Batman Begins. Um, and obviously you had like John Watts doing Spider-Man and Matt Reeves went to like Planet of the Apes, having just done Cloverfield, I think, beforehand. Um, which was, I know J.J. Abrams was involved, but that was a small film. But Nolan sort of came in, um, like Marvel seemed to be, and DC, I guess, re recruiting a lot of smaller directors. But whereas Nolan could come in and sort of bring his own ideas, now they're obviously very much told what to do. And watching Batman Begins, you realise how much freedom he had with it. And it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good a film if he was given a list of things he had to do and told to make it more less dark and etc so that i think is a like a massive standout thing about that film yeah absolutely and i suppose um the fact that the batman ip had kind of been run into the ground with batman and robin really also helped him as well um so yeah for the fact that i think dc and warner brothers were like well this couldn't get any worse that's probably why they allowed him as much freedom as they did as well yeah definitely yeah, absolutely. So um, going on, talking more about Nolan's long-term issues, now that we've talked about the um, his weird obsession with making everything 12A, well, I suppose it's not a weird obsession. He just wants he just wants the money, and I suppose he's probably getting told by Warner Brothers. We mentioned dialogue as well, kind of in Nolan films, in Tenet and Inception especially. I think there are times where it does lapse in other Nolan films as well, but those are kind of the two especially in my mind where it's just really poor. Um, now, here's a fun game that I want everyone at home to play along with because, well, me and Harry have already played this game together. Um, John David Washington uh, is obviously the first black lead in a Christopher Nolan film. Now, uh, we are going to give you some time. You can pause the podcast after we ask this question. Please think of another black character in any Christopher Nolan film. Okay, and we're back after you potentially paused it. Now, Harry, when we discuss this, how many characters could we name? Um, about three, and it took a long time for me to think of even the most obvious one, who is Morgan Freeman in, obviously, the Dark Knight trilogy, playing Lucius Wayne. 
Lucius Fox. Fox. Way, Lucius Fox, yeah. yeah. Um, and then after that, it does get quite difficult. I then went to uh, in Interstellar, one of the crewmates, and I had to look this up. He's called Romilly, and he's paid, played by David Gaiazzi. Um, and he's the one who stays on the ship when they go down to the water planet and gets a lot older. And then he's killed off, I think, by Matt Damon. Not directly, but when or when there's like, like an explosion somewhere. Yeah. Um, so his role is very minimal. Um, and then you pointed out that in The Dark Knight, uh, Joker kills. I can't remember. It's a mob boss, is it? Yeah, it is. It's like some and, small time mob boss after the I'm first White sure series. Who, after the first White So Serious speech, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure who the actor is, but that was all we could come up with. Yeah, so and when when it comes to interesting women in Christopher Nolan films as well, you hinted at this problem earlier. Like it, it, it does seem at times that he just has a limited idea of what to do with them. Definitely, and just one more point on the on the black characters. There's an argument that I saw online that his films. So Dunkirk's obviously historical and it was before America had joined the war. Um, and the prestige is historical as well. But obviously that doesn't excuse the other films. Yeah. Um, and with the Batman films, I guess he was going for a very traditional interpretation of the characters. Whereas in The Batman, we're going to have Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. Um, but there was definitely an opportunity there for him to mix things up. Yeah, um, I, which he didn't take. There's a similar. It's a similar kind of story with Asian characters and um, uh, Indian characters as well. There's the Indian guy in Tenet, who I think might be the same actor as the one from Inception, who does all of the medicines. There, there are two very small parts, but there we are. Um, and then there's Ken Watanabe in Inception, and. Um, the guy that Batman goes to beat up in Hong Kong in The Dark Knight. Uh, and that's, again, that's kind of pretty much the only characters there that I can name. And then, and now women-wise, like, it just, so apart from Jessica Chastain in Inception, no, not Inception, in Interstellar, and Marion Cotillard in Inception, and at a real push, maybe even... Um, Anne Hathaway in The Dark Knight Rises. Although There's, she doesn't have much to do yeah. after the sort of first act. Yeah. Um, there's, as I mentioned earlier, in Insomnia, there's uh, Hilary Swank's character, Ellie Burr, who is like a really key character. Um, the, the policewoman who's sort of trying to find the truth um, while Al Pacino's character's Sort of trying to shut her down but also teaching her like useful lessons and that's a good character but how much of that was in the original film and how much of that was christopher nolan we i'm not sure yeah. so i can't that really could... remember what carrie ann moss does in memento to be honest with you as well um but she is quite key in that so we'll, we'll put her in as well but it, like having four female characters among 10 films no 11 including the following but i've not seen that uh, it does, it, it's kind of suspect. It's also the way the characters are used. Because in Memento, she, the wife's dead, isn't she? Yes. Um, oh, there are so many dead wives in Christopher Yeah, the Logan Prestige, films. both of the wives die. Yeah. Uh, um, Batman, Bat uh, the Dark Knight even, I suppose. Um, 
Uh, Rachel. Rachel dies. Yeah. Yes. Inception. Inception. And Inception's it, bad because Leonardo. Interstellar. Yeah. She's already dead. But oh. also in in Inception, like it wasn't the reason she died because Leonardo DiCaprio's character like went into her mind and sort of made her go a bit insane. Yes. Of and it's like, but then again, they never really sort of suggest that he's done anything wrong. And the same in the Prestige because the one of the wives commits suicide because of like how awfully as Christian Bale's character treats her. And then again, he's, I mean, they're, they're shown as more flawed, but there's, there, it's often like the protagonist's fault that the wife's dead as yes. well. Which... This is something I didn't actually pick up on in Inception is that Carl, I suppose Don Cobb is made to be a really likable guy. I know, but, but he, <laughs> he's just not, he murdered his wife. And then, um, Anne Hathaway in Interstellar as well is, She's played as like very emotional, and doesn't she want to go and Wait, get? She do wants you to mean go to the Jessica planet. Chastain or like? Oh no, no Anne Hathaway, Hathaway is in it. No, I forgot. Yeah, because um, and doesn't she want to go to uh that guy? Is it Matt Damon or is it another person we don't oh, see? Oh, it's she another was, like, person. In love with? Yeah, it's another person we don't we see. We don't see them. In love with. And she wanted to go to that planet just because he was there. Yeah. And she she's played as quite sort of irrational and. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, whereas compared to Jessica Chastain, who's played as this sort of very intelligent and, and saves everyone, Anne Hathaway's character is not the best in that film. Yeah, I'd forgotten um, completely about that. But yeah, that's a really good point to bring up as well, which, you know, um, which is a bit annoying, to be honest with you, like to think that this that's still a bit suspect, like in general, in terms of like what he's saying that women can do and whatever um, as well. Uh, so we worked out earlier that there are five of his films out of the 11 that were written by John, well, that were written in some part by Jonathan Nolan. And there, you know, you can make a strong argument to suggest that those are his five best films. Um, so, the films are The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Memento, Interstellar, and The Prestige were all the ones that um, Jonathan helped with. So do you think that there might be a problem as well with Christopher Nolan as a writer? Because as a spectacle director, like this, you know, we can't really fault him. But when it comes to actually writing good characters and a good story, it does sometimes start to fall apart. Yeah, definitely. Um... Jonathan Nolan, I think, co-created the HBO Westworld series, which is supposed to be quite good, I think. He did, you're and right. Obviously, I think Jonathan Nolan, I mean, he wrote the short story that Memento's based on. And I think Christopher Nolan gets a lot of credit, probably, for what John Nolan comes up with. Um, and I think some other concepts they came up with together. Uh, and I think as a screenplay writer, Christopher Nolan, because Tenet was all him, Inception was all him. I think that Jonathan Nolan maybe just balances out Christopher Nolan's sort of ideas with actual better better dialogue and 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 just balances it out a little bit. Yeah, I suppose this is also another issue is is anyone telling Christopher Nolan no because his main producer is his wife. Yeah, that was something we talked about earlier as well that yeah, Emma Thomas who he's been 
I think his, it was his girlfriend at uni and then they got married. So she's been involved with every single thing he's done back to his first student film. Um, and as the main producer, I do feel, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a different experience to most producers who probably just say no almost before they even hear the idea. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 really strange that usually we're complaining about producers who say no too much and have their own wacky ideas, but it seems in this case like the opposite's happening. Um, so that's kind of, I suppose, an interesting distinction to make. And one that we don't see usually uh, is when a, a so-called auteur just maybe has a bit too much power. And this is why I was saying earlier that him doing a Bond film would be like him doing any sort of franchise or just anything that's not written by him, um, has not been written by him or Jonathan Nolan in any part, I think would be really interesting for him to do again. And a nice little refreshing exercise, if anything else, because um, spectacle wise, I think you could give him any like leading action franchise and he'd do a really good job with it. But um I, especially if it's sci-fi action uh, uh, in particular, I think. But I think, you know, having, having actual elements in place where you can tell Christopher Nolan no um, is, is, is probably something that people should start thinking about because uh, it's been 24, well, it was 2014 where, when Interstellar came out and that's probably his last, like, really, really good film in my personal opinion and probably in most people's opinions and definitely in your opinion. So um, maybe it's, it's time to start hoping that he can get back on the right track again, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you, you asked me earlier um, and I, maybe you're about to ask again, but what I'd want to see him doing in the future. Uh, and I think, although I, I can't see him doing this because of how much, the action and the the IMAX spectacle is such a big part now of what he wants to do. But I'd love to see him just dial things down a lot, um, have a more character driven sort of thing, maybe like similar to Memento. And you can still fit in some like high concept if you really want to, but just maybe dial things down, have a smaller budget, um, just, just do something a bit different maybe because he's made, is it 11? I guess now, if you yeah. count following, he's made, 11, 11, yeah. he's made 11 films and someone like Tarantino, who's made nine films. Right. He, okay. He, he says over a much films. longer period. He says nine films, but I'm fairly sure he's like not counting two of them, to be honest. I think he's uh, actually made like 11. But still, he's, he's still been going since the seven, eight, early 90s. No, 90s, 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. What am I on about? But still, <laughs> he's had... He's had he's been going for a longer period of time than Christopher Nolan, but he's made less films. Um, so you feel with his films, each one, even if it's they're they're not good for whatever reason that you might want to to say, I feel like they're really thought through. And even though Tenet supposedly took five years to write, it doesn't watch like a film that someone spent five years writing. Um, yeah, definitely. Um... What do you think then may kind of separate Tarantino out from Nolan in terms of like style? Do you think it might be for the fact that Tarantino kind of, you can split his work into this trilogy at the start of Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And then kind of after that, you've got the trilogy of alternate history films as well. Um, 
with uh, Inglorious Bastards, well, no, Quadrilogy even, Inglorious Bastards, um, Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then I suppose you've also got um, the two Kill Bill films, part one and part two. Do you think there may be something there Tarantino's kind of been able to reinvent himself more often than Christopher Nolan has? Definitely. He, his films all have, I'd say, more of a distinct identity than the Nolan films. If I picked an action scene from The Dark... If you had never seen the films and I picked an action scene from The Dark Knight, Inception um, and Tenet, I mean, because obviously some you can tell because of like the historical... If it's Don Kirk, it's going to be pretty obvious. But if I if I showed you a Tenet action scene and a Dark Knight one without making it explicitly obvious, but having Batman, I think you'd struggle to tell the difference, even though those films are over ten years apart. Um, I disagree with the Dark Knight trilogy. I think those are the only ones really in Nolan's kind of recent repertoire. Or, well, they're not even really recent anymore. Um, I think they're kind of they're the only trilogy that really kind of distinguish themselves, and that's why it's kind of weird sometimes to think of them as Nolan films, and potentially why even we earlier kind of didn't talk about them until last, because they don't kind of give the same Nolan uh, Nolan vibe that the other films do i i'm getting really conscious about how we've used the word vibe so many times in this podcast (laughs) so that's why i tried to avoid using it but but i couldn't so um i i disagree with you there inception uh and uh tenet though i would definitely agree with you on Uh, i feel like because he's just he's just known as being such a spectacle director and he's played with time so often now uh, that it, you know, it's kind of getting a bit tired as well. Like how he played with it, even in Dunkirk, um, as well uh, as well as in Interstellar and Tenet. So maybe this is just his time trilogy. That is how we'll know it in the future, or maybe we'll just say that one third of that trilogy is actually worthwhile. Who knows? Um, so that is everything for today's episode of the Ball po- Film Podcast. Thank you very much to Harry for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, I can't think of anyone else who knows kind of more know than wise than you do. So you're a very good presence to have on the podcast. Even if you did bottle it on a few occasions, which I will edit out to make sure you <laughs> sound silly. Well, thank you for having me on absolutely no issue uh is there anywhere on on well i know what you're like so the answer's no but i'll just ask you anyway is there anywhere that you uh, want to promote at the moment in terms of social media and what you're doing uh, i suppose it's time for you to build up your platform now well um anyone can follow me on uh, instagram at harry d king but uh, there'll be no posts and um i never go on it really so Unlike some of your guests who are keen to plug, I am, um, which is fair enough, but I am, um, I don't really care. But I, thank I mean, you. To be fair, a lot of them are usually <laughs> aspiring journalists, Harry. They're not just Christopher <laughs> Nolan fans, me taking advantage of the fact that I'm their friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to find me on Twitter, there's at J underscore Palmer 2. Uh, at Boar Film is where we are as well. Um, uh, that would be and at the Boar Film on Instagram as well. You can catch our posts on there and you can check our stories whenever the podcast is released or whenever something big happens. 
uh, on Facebook as well. Just search up for film. If anyone wants to come on the show, then just feel free to message me or email film at the board.org or message the Facebook page, the board film. If you want to write for it, then get a board membership and join the writers group. I've got to go in more in detail with this in future uh, and, and now because Freshers Week is starting soon and we need to recruit more people. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you next week where we will be discussing Chadwick Boseman's Life and Works.